We've said the reading today is the prologue of John, John 1, verses 1 to 18. And I'm going to sing that for you. The words will be on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The truth light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him yet to those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him, cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God. relationship with the Father has made him done. 
Today we start a study in John's Gospel. And it will be this time next year by the time we finish it. <laughs> so it's, it's a year. It takes us up to, to Pentecost almost next, uh, next year. And we're doing that for a number of reasons. First of all, it teaches us about Jesus, about who he is and about what he did. It helps us to understand how to live like Jesus. One of the key characteristics of growing young is that we preach Jesus. And it will help shape us for the future. But why John? As Stephanie said earlier, there are four Gospels, and all of them talk about Jesus. Well, you know, if you are if you have a particular hobby or a particular passion and you read the magazines and things about it, you understand that, that no one document, no one magazine, no one article gives you the whole picture. You get it in different ways from different places. And that is true here too. It's an extraordinary story. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Kind of more or less, partly I think because they're taken from Matthew, uh, sorry, from Mark, uh, the first one written and the others kind of add their bits. But they're called synoptic gospels. And that's because it kind of means to see things uh, from the same or similar point of view. And that's what they do. But John, John is very different. God uses John to give us a different perspective. Not because he wants us to be confused or because he wants us to be misled. John hasn't made this up. It's not a fabrication just to be different. It's just to give us a different perspective on Jesus. It's because God loves us and he wants us to have a full set, a full complement of information about Jesus and his life. What's unique about the Gospel of John More than just the fact that it doesn't contain any parables. More than the fact that, actually, it doesn't follow the same chronology as the other Gospels. Because, basically, John moves things around to make his point. What's unique about the Gospel of John is that John was an eyewitness in the way that Mark and Luke weren't. Even Matthew, who was one of the twelve chosen by Jesus, wasn't as close to Jesus as John was. John describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. That is, his best friend. John was in the inner circle with his brother James and Peter, the inner circle of three. You know, sometimes um, in church we think a minister shouldn't actually have real friends. Shouldn't actually have people that he's closer to than others. But there's the example from Jesus. We see time and again, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. They went and did things with Jesus that they understood. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it's not the twelve of them who are there. It's Peter, James, and John. But the closest was John. So he had that friend, and then he had the three friends, and then he had the twelve, and then there was 120, and eventually there were many more. But John has a unique perspective on who Jesus is. 
He had the conversations and interactions with Jesus that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't have. And there's something going on here that God wants us to see and to know and to understand about Jesus. And that's why at the end of the gospel, near the end of the gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he writes this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What a statement to make. I've written this so that whoever reads it can have life. It's pretty bold, actually. You know, but but that's that's the whole point. Is that when we understand who Jesus really is, He says, "I have come that you can have life in all its fullness." So, as Stephanie said, John kind of weds theology to poetry. It, it's a it's a poetic prose, a prose that, like poetry, packs layers of meaning into a word or phrase. Hence, you know, the word. How do you understand that? Well, you've you've got to kind of get where John's coming from. But those words, I said at the beginning, and I say again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those few words have inspired theologians to write books, musicians to compose songs and music, artists to paint masterpieces, and all of us to be able to understand Jesus in a much bigger way. These first 18 verses are known as the prologue. If you think of the prologue as a a kind of overture, a beginning piece that introduces themes that the full work will treat in greater detail. So we can't possibly cover it this morning. I mean, it's just not possible. There you go. The themes that there are in these first 18. And I'm not going to go through all the references. You just have to trust me. They come up later, okay? We have the pre-existence of the Word. God as Word And Father and Son is distinctive, but one. Jesus as God. Life, light. The struggle between light and darkness. The power of the light over darkness. The relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. Rejection that Jesus suffered. The miracle of our being able to see God's glory. And Jesus as the only Son of God. Not bad for 18 verses. Thankfully, we come back to it, and maybe that's why it takes a long time to work through. This gospel, as I mentioned, is uniquely arranged. It's a bit like a a docudrama. Here is someone who is giving an editorial shape to his story, to what he experienced. Not, Not just going through it in a chronological order, but saying, this is what that meant, and I'm moving that to there because it shows that. And he's moving the stuff around to make it make sense and to fit his argument and what he wants us to, to understand. For example, in chapter 2, when we get to it, there's a story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And that doesn't happen till the end of his life. That's in Holy Week. We've got to get to that next year. So, so why is he put it in chapter 2? Because in that story, John sees something of deep significance, which we're not going to talk about today because we've got that another Sunday. But he's moved it to make a point, to fit the argument, something that he wants us to carry through the rest of the story as we work out who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. 
I think that's quite a helpful way to think about the gospel. And what's happening here in this prologue is that John, from the very beginning, wants us to know the identity of Jesus. It's, if you like, deductive reasoning rather than inductive. Inductive reasoning is where you ask a lot of questions. And then you get the information, you gather it together, and you ask more questions. And you, you, you sort of work it down and work it down and work it down until you reach an answer. That's not what John's doing here. John's just saying, do you know what? In the beginning was Jesus. <laughs> and at the end is Jesus. And it's all about Jesus. He's not messing around. He tells us from the start who Jesus is as the word who became flesh because he wants us to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. So in the beginning. Sorry, John, can you go back a couple? Back to in the beginning. In the beginning. Why in the beginning? What's that about? Well, both Genesis and this prologue are accounts of creation at God's word. Both speak of darkness and the light coming into being at the word of God. And that light penetrates and overcomes darkness. Both speak of life. In Genesis, God speaks. And that word that he speaks brings humanity to life. Creates everything with a word. And what John does in this prologue is shows that the word of God brings eternal life to humanity. Each of the four gospels trace Jesus back to a particular beginning. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. Mark begins his gospel by saying the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but he starts with Isaiah, who prophesies the coming of the one who will prepare the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. Luke begins with the word of the angel to Zechariah, announcing the coming birth of John the Baptist and the announcement to Mary of Jesus' coming birth. John traces the word back to the very beginning, before time began, before the creation of the world. The word is not part of the creation, was not created, but stood with God at the creation. And you see, that's important. We've heard these words before, but the people hearing this in those early days of the church were mainly Jewish. And they couldn't understand because they believed in one God. They didn't understand Jesus as God. They couldn't get that. And so John wants to highlight it. So in the beginning, then we have was the word. Words are important. Now, I am not in any way a Greek scholar. So things that I say here, I have taken from commentaries. I'm just putting that out there so that you know If it's wrong, don't blame me. No. Logos is a brilliant choice of words to bridge the gap between Jewish and Greek 
thinking and experience. The first Christians were Jewish, but the gospel, as we know, if you read through the book of Acts, quickly spread to to the Greek-speaking world. And they didn't really know anything of, of the Messiah or the fulfillment of prophecy or any of that kind of stuff. So John's job is to, is to make this understandable, to put it in a language that they can understand and appreciate. So logos is the word here that is used for word. It's a common word in Greek philosophy. The Greeks believed that the, the world was really volatile, but it was under the control of logos. And John is saying that Jesus is that logos, that word. He was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Greek, when you use a noun, it almost always comes with the definite article. So when Greek doesn't use the definite article with a noun, it makes it much more like an adjective, a description of of character, the quality of something. So John didn't say that the Word was with the definite article, ho theos. That would be to say that the word was identical with God. He simply says that the word was theos, without the definite article, which means that the word was, as we might put it, of the same character, the same quality and essence and being as God. And there's a difference there. By using theos with the article in the first instance and without it in the second John, in this prologue, distinguishes between God and the Word, while at the same time saying, they are one. He's showing that they are distinct, but also saying they are of a piece. When we talk about the Trinity, that's what we mean. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct characters, Three distinct behaviors, three distinct people, but somehow one. That's a really difficult concept. But if you, if you think of the relationship between a husband and wife, in marriage, two people retain their individual identities, but in a sense, they become one person. And as one wife puts it, it's only after the wedding they learn which one. And the word was God. Now, that that wasn't Jewish thinking. They were expecting a Messiah. Of course they were. But, But they were expecting somebody who would be like King David, a great leader, a great man, a God empowered man, certainly, but only a man. The Jews had crucified Jesus because he claimed to be God. They couldn't have that. It just wasn't in their thinking. And then we go down a bit to verse 14. And it says, the word became flesh. And that in itself is a startling statement. And in the Greek, it's expressed in in, a bold, kind of vulgar language. The Greek word is sarx for flesh. Even the word is kind of ugly sounding, and it depicts an often ugly reality. 
it's most frequently used as a contrast with things that are spiritual. Earthly, dirty, bad, and spiritual, clean and good. So to say that God came as sarks, the Greeks who believed that all matter is evil, could not imagine the thought that God somehow would come as sarks, as matter, because matter is bad. Why would, how, how could it be? How could God do that? It's, it's the equivalent of God becoming a pornographer or a prostitute. Paul uses this word sarks to speak of the sins of the flesh. But he also says that God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful sarks or sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh. It's as if God had climbed into our sewer to deliver us from our sewage. And John, I suppose, might have used this stark language in part to counter two groups of of people who who were uh, promoting heresies in those days, the Gnostics uh, and the Docetists. They they couldn't understand or accept anything non-spiritual as good. And the distance between God and humans really seems so immense sometimes as to be unbridgeable. But God, in love, bridges these worlds using himself as bridge-building material. He came into the world. The Word became flesh, and he lived among us. The word here is uh, eskenosin, and it means tabernacled. Now, Jewish people of the day would understand that because they just think back to their history. And as you read through the Old Testament, uh, and as they come up out of uh, slavery in Egypt and go towards the promised land, they are told uh, to build a tabernacle, an ornate and elaborate and beautiful tent that served as the symbol of God's presence in their midst. And I mean, when I was growing up, we we had a guy in the Brethren, and he had a model of the tabernacle. And he took it around with him. I mean, it was enormous, right? He cut it, and he explained all of the, the symbolism that was in the tabernacle, down to the very tent pegs, right? Now, you can take it to extreme, right? But there's amazing stuff. You should read that. There's amazing stuff there in the tabernacle. Why is it covered with a red-covered uh, top? Because in order to get to God, you've got to go through blood. Ha! Who knew? Well, God did. God told him, here, build this tent. And as you go, I am going to go with you. That's the sign that I'm with you wherever you go. And then we get to Jerusalem and the temple. And the day they consecrated the temple, it says the glory of the Lord fell and filled the temple. Just as God had done in the tabernacle. And when Moses used to go and speak to God, he would come out and he had to cover his face because he had been in the presence of God and his face was so bright and shining. Do you know, this is, this is the word that's used here. He tabernacled 
among us. Verse 14 says that the God who once dwelled among them in the tabernacle tent and in the temple now chooses to to live amongst them and live amongst us in Jesus. The man, Jesus. We don't have time this morning to go through a proper explanation of all of that. But it's important that we at least have a basic understanding of what it's saying. We're told that when Jesus came, he came to show us what God was like. The word, the message from God is Jesus. Moses gave the law and it helped us to see the character of God. But there's no way that the law could speak about the the full grace and truth that was to be revealed. We're told no one had ever seen God. Humanity was afraid of God. God seemed so distant, so awesome that people couldn't really comprehend him. And so... God took on humanity to show us what he was like. It's God's ultimate self-expression. Jesus, in Jesus, the invisible, all-powerful, distant God became touchable. The awesome glory of God became resident in a person. Rather, that he took on our humanity. It wasn't, he wasn't wearing a disguise. Jesus suffered hunger and pain and weariness and rejection and everything that is part of being human. Jesus experienced it. God became one of us. Grace and truth embodied in a human being. If you want to see what God is like, All you need to do is look at Jesus. And John found that God was not a tight-fisted, mean killjoy. Rather, God was loving and compassionate and merciful and generous, angry at sin and absolutely head over heels in love with the people that he had created. So much so that he healed and delivered and taught and even sacrificed himself for us. The overarching theme of this gospel is that the word who was in the beginning with God and was God, as the message version puts it, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He's still in the neighborhood. In you and me, we represent God where we are. And the truth is, God is at work in the neighborhood in ways that we just don't know. Because he loves people. And he wants what's best for them and for us. John, Jesus' friend, speaks about Jesus. And it's good that he wrote it down so that we can find out what it's like to be a friend of Jesus, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, to give him glory, to put him first. Amen.